when I was in my sophomore year of college, which this is now 22, 23 years ago, uh, I had the opportunity to join a rock band and uh, take a little pause out of my college education. And uh, having come from Malaysia to the States, my parents were not so keen on the idea of me pausing my education in order to seize this moment. But I was convinced that this was sort of the opportunity of a lifetime. There was a guy who was asking us to be his band and he was gonna go lead worship at all these arena youth events. And I thought, this is it. This is the moment of all my dreams coming true. And so I hesitantly, tentatively, you know, dialed uh, the long distance international phone call. This is when the internet was still a little wobbly. You couldn't do video calls or anything like that. So every minute of this phone call was gonna be at least a dollar, maybe $2 and had to be kind of quick. And so I'm calling my parents and I, my dad answers and I start to explain the situation to him. Like, dad, this is it. This guy wants us to be part of his band and we're gonna travel, we're gonna play arenas. And, and there's this long pause on the other end of the line. I'm thinking, oh no, did, you know, did, did we get cut off? What's going on? And my dad just says, <clears throat> at least the way I remember it, is he says, son, what is this season for? And I thought, gosh, I don't know, is this a trick question? Like, is there a way I could answer? This is the season for seizing your dreams, following your ambitions. And I was like, well, I mean, you know, it's a season of preparation for the calling ahead. And he says, son, I, I think this is a season that is meant to be about your education and about your preparation. And he said, there, there'll be no shortage of good opportunities in the future. I had no idea how prophetic his words would actually be, but he said, you have to do what this season is meant for. And I tell you that story because I think we find ourselves in a moment that we would like to get out of. We find ourselves in a season that we don't actually want to be in. And the question before us as we start this new series today is, what do we do when we're in a situation that we don't like, but can't change? What do we do when we're in a situation that we don't like, but actually can't change? This is a series over the next eight, nine, 10 weeks uh, through the book of James and James, uh, by church tradition, is the half-brother of Jesus, leader of the Jerusalem church. It's very possible that uh, this letter was one of the earlier Christian letters that we have. In fact, if it's true that James uh, died around the year 62 AD, then this letter certainly comes before that. And James is writing to encourage a group of believers that are made up perhaps of uh, um, primarily Jewish Christians, and he's trying to help them maybe understand the continuity between the rich wisdom tradition found in the Hebrew scriptures and the teaching of Jesus. And you look right here in James 1, verse 1, he opens this way, he says, from James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. To the 12 tribes who are scattered outside the land of Israel, greetings. The wisdom tradition in the Old Testament has many common themes. One of the themes the wisdom tradition has is about perseverance in trials. It's about making sure that you can endure. It's also about tenacity in prayer. But there's lots of overlap with the book of James and other parts of the Old Testament. 
For example, when you read the Psalms or the Proverbs or even the book of Job, you might hear echoes of many of these themes that James pulls out. You might find in those books uh, the, the idea that wisdom looks like this. Wisdom looks like prayers like this. Wisdom looks like a life like this. And then when you read Matthew's gospel, you see wisdom personified. You, say, you see how Jesus taught these very things. In fact, there's quite a bit of echo between what we call the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 and James's letter. And then you look at the book of Hebrews and you might say, well, if Matthew's gospel shows us how Jesus taught this, maybe the letter to the Hebrews shows us how Jesus lived this. And so I want us, as we're going through this series over the next several weeks, to think about this theme of wisdom. That's why we've called this series, Walk This Way. Don't walk that way. Say no to these other choices, but this is the way to walk, not just because it is wise, but it, because it is the way. It's Jesus's life given for us as the means and the model for our own life. Continuing on here in James chapter 1, verse 2 James begins to say, my brothers and sisters, think of the various tests you encounter as occasions for joy. What a peculiar phrase, occasions for joy. After all, here's why, you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let this endurance complete its work so that you may be fully mature, complete, lacking in nothing. This is right off the bat a different perspective on trials than maybe you and I might have. What do you do when you're in a season that you don't like but can't change? James says, it's an occasion for joy because this is going to produce an endurance that will then lead to your maturity. This particular Greek word for test shows up twice in the New Testament and it's about the testing of faith. Why is it? an occasion for joy. Could it be that the scriptures know that deep joy comes from the person we're becoming, not from the thing that we're doing or the situation we're enduring? In the early Christian centuries, in the mid 200s, there was a bishop in Carthage, a city in North Africa, a bishop named Cyprian. And he's writing to another church leader and he says, it's a bad world, Donatus. An incredibly bad world, but I have discovered in the midst of it a company of quiet and holy people who have learned a great secret. They have found a joy which is a thousand times better than any of the pleasures of sinful life. They are despised and persecuted, but they care not. They are masters of their souls. They have overcome the world. These people, Donatus, are the Christians, and I am one of them. You see this wisdom that James is describing about counting at joy in the middle of a trial actually becomes part of a ongoing rich Christian tradition. Maybe we would say what James wants us to embrace is that trials are an occasion for joy because they are an opportunity for maturity. What is this season for? It's an opportunity for maturity. And if you begin to see it that way, then all of a sudden, We, we, we recognize what James means when he calls this an occasion for joy. Now we're not just saying, well, I guess we just sort of have to get through this and how long till it's over. Now we can say, no, we can rejoice because we're on our way to a life that is mature and that grows up in Christ. 
So this morning, I want us to reflect on three things that are path, part of the path to maturity. Three things that make up the path to maturity, and you see it in these opening verses of James's letter. James 1, now verse 5. He says, But anyone who needs wisdom should ask God, whose very nature is to give to everyone without a second thought. Without keeping score, wisdom will certainly be given to those who ask. And whoever asks shouldn't hesitate. They should ask in faith without doubting. Whoever doubts is like the surf of the sea, tossed and turned by the wind. And people like that should never imagine that they will receive anything from the Lord. Why? Because they're double-minded, unstable in all of their ways. The first step along the path to maturity that James wants us to know about is that we need to seek wisdom at the source. Go to the source. The source of all wisdom in this world, in this life, comes from the Father, comes from God himself, and it's revealed in Christ the Son. In fact, the letter to the Hebrews opens by telling us that God spoke in various ways and in various times, but now he has spoken through his Son. If you want to know what wisdom looks like, look at the Son of God. Look at Jesus himself and understand this is what the wisdom of God looks like. God is wisdom. He is generous with giving it. So don't hesitate in asking. But what's this part all about where, where James says, but don't be double-minded. Sometimes this verse is used to talk about not doubting, or maybe you've heard it used in some sort of prosperity teaching where if you just could have 100% faith and not an ounce of doubt, then you can have everything that God wants. What James is saying is not that. What James is saying is you need to not hedge your bets. You need to not keep your options open and to think, let me try a little bit of that Jesus wisdom, and then let me try a little bit of the world's wisdom. Let me try a little bit of this Christian way of living, and let me try a little bit of the world's way of living. James says, stop going back and forth. Make up your mind. Are you in or are you out? Like the wave or the surf that's either coming in or going out. James says, decide. Are you all in on this life? Do you truly believe that God alone is wise and that Jesus Christ, the son of God and his cross, which is foolishness to the world is actually the wisdom of God. Are you in or are you not? When I was in middle school, we had just moved. Uh, the first time I moved to the States was in middle school with our whole family. And uh, I, I remember being in sixth grade and I got one of those infamous middle school notes. And it came from a girl about one of her friends. And this girl's note said to me, uh, do you like me? Yes or no, classic middle school note. And now I was in sixth grade and this <laughs> is maybe too much of a window into uh, me, but here's how I responded. I said, well, if one is, I don't like you at all. And if 10 is, I'm in love with you. And if five is, I see you as a friend. Let's say that I think of you my feelings for you are like a six. And then I added, but to be honest, there's another girl in this class that I also have feelings for that are like a six. And needless to say, I did not hear from this girl or any other girls for quite some time. I was doing that un, uh, unstable, double-minded, uh, let me just tell you, I'm kind of not sure. My feelings are about a six. James says, don't do that with the wisdom of God. Decide, 
Are you going to follow the wisdom of the cross or are you going to follow the wisdom of your political tribe? Are you going to follow a wisdom that looks like self-giving sacrificial love or are you going to follow a wisdom that sounds like bravado and self-preservation? Are you going to follow a wisdom that looks like power and strength and dominance? Or are you going to follow a wisdom that looks like Christ crucified? Seek wisdom at the source and go all in on that quest. And then as the letter goes on in chapter one, verse nine, James says, brothers and sisters who are poor should find satisfaction in their high status. And then he says, verse 10, those who are wealthy should find satisfaction in their low status because they will die off like wildflowers. The sun rises with its scorching heat and dries up the grass so that its flowers fall and its beauty is lost. And just like that, in the midst of their daily lives, the wealthy will waste away. Those who stand firm during testing are blessed. They are tried and true. They will receive the life God has promised to those who love him as their reward. The second stop or checkpoint on the path to maturity is to put your life in perspective to put your life in perspective. And there's actually a few layers to this that James outlines for us. The first is he wants us to kind of recognize the gift in your lack. I know this is an odd thing to say. And this ought not to be said glibly by someone who's in a position of privilege to say, oh, well, if you lack, it's, it's actually good. But I think James is saying this to those who are lowly. In fact, it sounds an awful lot like the song that his mother Mary sang. You have to wonder if young James heard this in their home frequently. Oh God, you lift up the lowly. And so James can say, look, if you're in lack, understand that in God's eyes, you have a high status. There is sometimes what theologians have referred to as God's preferential treatment to the poor. The notion that God is particularly near to the brokenhearted and those whom this world considers lowly. But then there's also a grief in the wealth. There's a gift in the lack. There's a grief in the wealth. He says, look, there's actually a trap. When you find yourself with enough comfort and with enough means, you might be tempted to think that those things are secure when they're actually not secure. I think of that famous Jim Carrey quote, the comedian and actor who said, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see that it's not the answers. And I know on many days, most of us are like, well, let me just try. Let me just find out for myself. But James wants us to put our life in perspective that if you are in a position of weakness to understand that actually in God's economy, you have favor. And if you are in a position of strength, be careful that you don't start to think that those things are stable and secure. But remember that all of this is fleeting. And then he kind of gives us not just the gift in the lack or the grief in the wealth, but he starts to say to us, take the long view, put your life in perspective. This is one moment. This is one season. This is one summer. Maybe it's one year. But listen, if you put your life in perspective, understand that from the lens of eternity, from the lens of what's coming, from the perspective of the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come, this momentary hardship is not going to last. Blessing and reward will follow testing and trials. And then in verse 13, no one who is tested should say, God is tempting me. This is because God is not tempted by any form of evil, nor does he tempt anyone. 
Everyone is tempted by their own cravings. They're lured away and enticed by them. Once those cravings conceive, they give birth to sin. And when sin grows up, it gives birth to death. But then he says, don't be misled. My dear brothers and sisters, every good gift, every good, every perfect gift comes from above. These gifts come down from the Father, the creator of heavenly lights, in whose character there is no change at all. The third piece of the journey, the path toward maturity is that we have to learn to see God as he really is. To begin to see God truly, clearly, not as the one who tempts. It's interesting here because both of these Greek words, the one used earlier for test and the one translated here as tempt, both of them have overlapping meanings. The idea of proving something. And yet this particular Greek word most of the time in the New Testament is used with a shade of a negative meaning. It has the idea of trapping leading someone down the wrong path. In the Gospels, it's used of the religious leaders who are trying to trap Jesus in his words. And that's why in most of our translations, it translates it as tempt. And James says, look, you might experience the same set of circumstances, but you might misunderstand the intention of God. You might be going through the same trial but if you think God is evil, then you will experience this as a temptation. You will say, God is trying to destroy me. But if you are convinced that God is good, then you will experience that same trial, not as a temptation, but as a testing. But we have to be clear about our perception of who God is. We have to be clear about our perception of God's intentions. What is God after in your life, in the midst of this? What is God after as you've labored through this season as you struggled against, if you've mourned the losses of celebrations and milestones, as you've had to deal with the difficulty of finances and the uncertainty of employment, what is God actually trying to do? Is he tempting you? Is he trying to lead you towards darkness? James says, don't be misled. That's not what God's about. God is the one who's trying to purify us. And if there's anything in us that pulls us toward darkness and death, it's not God, it's our own evil desires. We have these hooks inside of us that easily get snagged on the trials of this world and says, oh, and it pulls us down. And James says, don't mistake that for God. That's not who God is. God is the one who gives good gifts. God is the one who gives perfect gifts. Friends, I, I want us this morning to see so clearly the heart of the Father for you. It's very easy in these seasons of disruption and disorientation to begin to question that and to say, God, are you really, are, are you really after good? And you don't have to say that your circumstances are good, but you do have to see that God is good. We finished the series, Faith in the Wilderness, a few weeks ago. And to me, the defining moment of the whole of Israel's wilderness journey. There's so many moments to pick from, but the defining moment to me is not Israel's sin or Israel's lack of faith. The defining moment is how God reveals himself to Moses in the cleft of the rock in Exodus 34. And when the glory of God passes by Moses, what Moses hears is the voice crying out, the Lord, the Lord, abounding in compassion, full of steadfast love, 
for a thousand generations. Yes, he will deal with sin. He will right the wrongs to the third and fourth generation. God, out of his love, will bring judgment and justice. But he is, in his essence, the God of abounding love. The glory of God is the goodness of God. If we're going to find anything to be true in the midst of the season, I pray that you would find this to be true, that God is good. And while James has told us that our sinful desires conceive and give birth to destruction, he says there's another birth that actually takes place. James is trying to tell us that there's actually another gift that God gives, and one of the gifts, one of the good and perfect gifts God gives is the gift of new birth. Verse 18, he chose to give us birth by his true word. And here is the result. We are like the first crop from the harvest of everything he created. There's another harvest because there's another birth. And this is the gift. The gift of God comes to us in Jesus Christ. The gift of new creation life comes to us in Jesus Christ. And now we look here at the letter to the Hebrews where the writer says in Hebrews 4, we don't have a high priest who can't sympathize with our weaknesses, but instead one who was tempted in every way. He himself went through the fire, went through the trial, except without sin. Hebrews 5 verse 8, although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And what's the result of this? After he had been made perfect, he became the source because Jesus has walked this way before you and before me because Jesus has walked this way perfectly. Now the way has been opened up to us. He's become the source of eternal salvation for everyone who obeys him. Jesus, my friends, has passed every test that we fail. Maybe you find yourself eight, nine weeks into this quarantine and lockdown. You're thinking, boy, I've failed a lot of tests. I've been bad with my friends. I've been bad with my family. I've made mistakes online. I, I, I've been anxious. I've been fearful. I, I've done some, I, I've failed some tests. Friends, the gospel is not about how good of a test taker you are. The good news is that Jesus has walked this way and passed every test that we fail. And it gets even better than that. The book of Hebrews builds to this climactic point in chapter 12. So then let's run the race. Let's us walk this way that is laid out in front of us. Since we have such a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let's throw off any extra baggage. This is the stuff, throw off your wrong perceptions of God, throw off the temptation to seek wisdom in other places. Throw off all of those things. Put your life in perspective, throw it all off. Get rid of the sin that trips us up and fix our eyes on Jesus, faith's pioneer and perfecter. He endured the cross, ignoring the shame for the sake of the joy that was laid out in front of him and sat down at God's right hand, the right hand, right side of God's throne. Not only did Jesus pass every test, but Jesus always perfects what he pioneered. Jesus will perfect what he pioneered. The thing that he started, he will complete. James wants us to know, look, there are these evil desires at work in us that will give birth to death and destruction, but there's another gift. There's an actual gift, a good gift that's been given to you. It's a gift that Jesus pioneered in you, a new life, and he will perfect it. So fix your eyes on Jesus as you walk this way. This morning, we're gonna come to the table of the Lord, and as we come 
to the table, the invitation is clear. We fix our eyes on Jesus to see what wisdom looks like in person. We fix our eyes on Jesus to remember his suffering, that even in our suffering, we're not alone. We fix our eyes on Jesus to fulfill his joy. You and I were part of the joy that was set before him as he endured the cross. You and I, seated at his table, feasting with him, were part of the joy that the Son of God saw as he endured the darkness of Calvary. So this morning, if you would, just bow your heads where you are and let's pray this prayer of confession together. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done, by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart and we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We're truly sorry and we humbly repent for the sake of your son, Jesus Christ. Have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways. To the glory of your name, amen. And so now, friends, hear the good news. In Jesus Christ, our sins have been forgiven. The peace of the Lord be with you. Amen and amen. On the night that he was handed over to suffering and death, our Lord Jesus Christ took bread and whatever elements you have around you in your home or apartment, you can grab now. And when Jesus gave thanks to the Father, he blessed it, he broke it, he gave it to his disciples and he said, take, eat. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And after supper, Jesus took the cup of wine, and when he had given thanks to the Father, he gave it to his disciples, and he said, Drink this, all of you, for this is my blood. This is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you drink this, do this for the remembrance of me. And so, friends, we say now the great mystery of our faith. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. These are the gifts of God given for us, the people of God. Let's receive it now. Take a moment and just begin to lift up your thanksgiving, your gratitude, your praise to the one who has gone before, to the one who has passed every test that we failed, to the one who perfects the work that he pioneered, to the one who opened up the way for us. We bless you, Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Well, friends, we're so thankful that you've joined us this morning at New Life Downtown. Uh, we do hope that you'll stay connected via our website, our Facebook page, Instagram page. I know we're posting little prompts for prayer and for play in the morning and evening. And of course, in our New Life Downtown Congregation Facebook group, we have morning prayer that happens five days a week uh, at 8 a.m. You can always catch those videos there. Additionally, on Tuesdays at noon, our worship pastor, uh, Brian Bettis, and a team uh, are leading us in worship for 15, 20 minutes every Tuesday at noon. So lots of ways uh, to stay connected with one another. And Lord, haste the day when we can all see each other's faces, hear each other's voices in worship again. God bless you and keep you. Make his face to shine upon you. The Lord turn toward you, be gracious to you, 
and grant you peace in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.